Hi, I'm Christine Lucer from New York in the U.S., and I recently messed up my knee pretty bad in a potato sack race. That's Professor Lucer, a business professor at Minerva University and a senior academic director at Minerva Project. This week, we're diving deep into her story on humans of Minerva. Welcome to Humans of Minerva, a podcast that captures the interesting stories of humans at Minerva. I'm Oliver, and I'll be your guest host for this episode. Today, we have a very special guest. I'll be sitting down with Professor Lizer. Hi, Professor Lizer. Hi, Oliver. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for joining us today. So you mentioned hurting your knee in a potato sack race. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I am vaguely new to Manhattan, and one of the things somebody passed my way as a good way to meet people in the city was an adult field day. So it was a bunch of 20 to 40-something-year-olds who all work in VC and tech doing really, really ridiculous games in Central Park. Awesome. An adult field day. That seems like a good way to sort of get back to your childhood. What was one weird belief that you had as a child? That is an excellent question. There were probably lots of them. One of my favorite things to do was mix strange things that I found in the house and together into potions. Mm. But that's more of a hobby than a belief. So a belief, I was a really picky eater and I was very okay with chicken. So my parents decided that anything was chicken and I believed it. So I really liked chicken, but I also liked chicken chops and chicken steak and chicken fish sticks. And I didn't know that chicken was not so different from all of those things for a very long time. Yeah, that's interesting. What does that sort of look like today? Are you still a piggy eater or has your diet expanded beyond different fake variations of chicken? I now eat a lot of different things other than chicken, but I will say I am more of an adventurous eater in my head than I am in practice. So I'll try lots of things, but I tend to be pretty set on the things that I like. Gotcha. I think that sort of speaks for all of us there. Tell me a little bit more about growing up in New York. Do you have any sort of favorite childhood memories or you'd like to share? I grew up, my family is from about 20 miles north of Manhattan. I have a younger sister who's three and a half years younger than me and a younger brother who's three and a half years younger than her. And it was sort of normal suburbia. My mom commuted to the city every day. We went to a public school that had field games, as it were. So maybe this is a theme in my life. One really fun memory it's kind of interesting is there was a summer, my brother was still a baby. And I think me and my sister really wanted to go to camp, but my parents were kind of stressed about this because camp is really expensive. (laughs) And so what they did was they convinced us that going to my grandparents' house in Florida was camp. I'm hearing myself say this, realizing my parents told me a lot of things in the world that might not have been true. They're great people. They're not liars. But they did position this as me and my sister getting to go to camp with our grandparents. So it was the first time we had ever gotten on a plane by ourselves. So they like put you on with a stewardess who like, kind of sits you down. And I guess I was probably eight and my sister was about five. And it was a really, really wonderful summer. My sister went to gymnastics a couple of times a week. I went to the library. She is much more athletic than me. But we'd come home and just choreograph these weird skits or these gymnastic routines. I was not good at gymnastics, but I was okay at directing it. And we flew back at the end of the summer. And we were just so excited to have had that experience that we didn't even miss going to camp. That sounds lovely. When traveling, did you get the whole like unaccompanied minor setup? 
I also went to camp with my sister. She's just a year older. And we were like nine or 10. And I remember, you know, we were in this like airport slash jail cell pretty much for a few hours before takeoff with all these other kids who didn't look like they really belonged in an airport either. That's awesome. I think that it may have been different when you were a kid versus when I was a kid. They basically just like sent us on our way. You could board planes as an eight-year-old alone. But that's probably one of the things that has improved about travel. <laughs> more security oh, for sure. yeah segueing it a little bit what sort of student were you like growing up in an elementary school or high school i really loved book fairs that was like the best day of school i don't know if other people had this experience but in public schools there used to be probably a week and i think it was scholastic books or publisher they would come and sort of fill the gymnasium with books and part of one of your classes was you could go for book fair and you could read all of the books just kind of like being a library but it was scarce and so it felt much cooler than going to the library and then occasionally you got to like take a book home and that was very exciting. So I think I was a nerd, but I also sort of got over it. Like I didn't want to care that much about school, especially by the time I got to high school. Like I wanted to do well, but I didn't want to try very hard. I remember yeah. trying to do that balance really well of being somebody who got good grades, but wasn't trying to do that. Yeah. How much of that do you think like carried over beyond high school? Were you keeping the same thing up in university or even now, maybe? It's a good question. I think that it's kind of swung a couple of times in a pendulum. And what I realized is that I'm really good and I want to care if it's something I'm interested in. And if it's something I'm not interested in, I don't want to care and I don't do very well in it. And so I went to undergrad thinking I would be a medical doctor. And then I took a bunch of classes that had nothing to do with medicine. I was like, what is this? This isn't about people. Yeah. This is the worst thing ever. <laughs> I think some people go through that in terms of thinking they want to do one thing and having it turn into something else. For sure. That's a great segue into sort of learning a little bit more about what you actually studied and, and what you did your research on. And not a lot of Minerva students know about that. Um, so animacy, the perception of life in a face. Are you still formally researching it? And what has changed in the field since then? It's a good question. And I think that it probably makes sense to explain what that means because Oliver is very well read into some of this. So I'm going to take a step back and just kind of explain what I did because it's super silly, but there's some meaning behind it. I ended up going to grad school and you think you know what you want to study. I sat down with my advisor and she's like, okay, well, I'm working on this project. I'm working on this other project. And one of them was about music and emotion and the way you can express mental states through music. And I can't tap to a beat. So I was very instantly like the other one, which was about face perception. And everyone and their mother studies face perception in cognitive neuroscience. But the part of your brain that responds to faces will light up whether it is a picture of someone you know, a picture of a stranger, a line drawing, a picture of a cat. So it's just something about the visual features in a face. And me and my advisor, like that can't be the whole story. Like some faces are much more meaningful than line drawing. Something's looking back at you is a meaningful signal. And so what we wanted to do was figure out how to separate out the visual information that something's the visual object of a face from the social information that that face is alive and important. And so the right way to solve that very deep question is to morph humans into dolls, which is something that I spent a lot of time doing in graduate school. So we use this computer program, we'd find doll faces that were really well matched to people. Um, actually went the other way around because doll faces are harder to find. So you go to doll stores, this is a real thing I did, and I was like, I take pictures of these for science. 
people think you're a freak. They let you do it anyway. And <laughs> search the internet for a human that looks like this doll and then use a computer program that sort of seamlessly blends them from one to the other. And the goal there was then you could show them to people. And at all points, it's a face. But at some points, you're like, oh, that face is, that that's alive. Or you could ask a question like, can this thing feel pain? And if it's a doll, it's not. And if it's a human, it can. But somewhere yeah. in between, it gets ambiguous. And so there's this idea of the uncanny valley, like things get creepy if you're not sure if it's an animation or a human. And so we studied things like that for the perception of animacy. Awesome. Are you still researching that at all? I will occasionally collaborate with people who are doing stuff based on some of the original work that we did. I have not kept on top of the face perception research, but you get these Google Scholar results. It's like somebody did something. And a lot of it's really cool. Oh, I wish I yeah. hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Have you seen sort of any practical applications of that research? I think one of the coolest papers we wrote was that where people detect that life in a face changes based on your group affiliation. And what I mean by where, you can imagine that this weird morph, it's linearly changing. It's going gradually from the human to the object. But what people perceive when you ask them if it's alive or not, or if it has a mind, or if it can have mental states, they say, no, 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 no. And then all of a sudden it kind of jumps to yes. So you get this interesting stepwise function. And I was presenting this research at a friend's lab and had this adorable first, I don't think he had even started grad school yet. It was the summer before he was going to be a first year grad student. And he had this brilliant idea that where that point, where that yes to no point switches it could depend on whether you affiliate with the other person. So if you see them as an in-group member or an out-group member, it'll change where you perceive their humanness. And I was like, that's never going to work, but sure, let's try. And he was yeah. right. So we did this cool study where we told people that the faces they were looking at were based on Republicans if they were Democrats or Democrats if they were Republicans or they were NYU or BU students. And what you find is like that point of animacy where someone sees the life in the face, which we later found out through some imaging work, gates higher level things like perspective taking, shifts based on in-group and out-group. And so that I think is one of the more interesting pieces of work that came out of it is that what you see as human is shifted by your affiliation with a group. Yeah, no, that is super interesting. I feel like you know, that's also incredibly relevant to where we are, you know, with Minerva being a fully online program. You know, what sort of facial cues or perceptions of life are lost in forms online teaching environment? And how do you sort of compensate for that as a professor? I think that people have a misperception that you lose more than you actually do. So much of what I think you're getting from life in a face is contingent movement. And so this is one thing we tried to do where we tried to animate the weird in between faces. So if they were like tracking a ball, you'd think that it was alive sooner because it's doing something that's contingent on something else in the world. And so right now we're on this call together and I can see you nodding at me. And that's giving me just as much information that you're paying attention as I need. It doesn't matter that you're a little bit pixelated or not. And this is one of the things that's funny about Forum where... There was some talk about analyzing the videos and trying to detect engagement mm. and people were looking at facial expressions. I really think it's just contingent feedback from what I'm saying and what people are doing and also the consistency of it in a top row. So if someone says something and everyone laughs, except Oliver, who's not laughing at all, I'm like, you're not paying attention, time to call on you. 
Or if everyone's being very serious and Oliver's laughing, time to call on you. And I don't, I've never tested it, but I bet that that's true. And you could probably find evidence of it based on how much the videos of people are synced up across the kind of mean of the class. Yeah. Like in regards to the emotion that they're displaying at the time. Yeah. As you know, speaking from personal experience as a student who might not always be at the same you know, emotional level as the rest of the class, it's definitely true. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, I'd love to know what you learned from these experiences in your past. I think, you know, we've seen that, you know, you started as a student who was super interested in books and interested in learning, but only to a certain extent based on what you were actually interested in. And obviously, you know, this has evolved into university where you studied something very specific and now you're on the other side of that teaching. So yeah, what what have you broadly learned from your past and what would you like to share with us? I think one thing that I always find really interesting is that paths are not linear. Uh, I think I mentioned it before. I thought I was going to be a medical doctor. I did not go that path. I dropped pre-med pretty quickly. I ended up going to NYU for a summer internship where I studied vision. And I realized that being a grad student was really cool, but studying vision was terrible. So I went to a PhD program in Cogneuro where I thought I was studying empathy and mind perception, but I actually ended up studying vision. So the visual features of a face, it's really loopy. And then after that, I ended up doing this weird postdoc at Harvard Business School which is how I ended up teaching business at Minerva. And so if you look backwards, there's a lot of things in my career path that look very linear. But as you're going through it, very little of it makes sense. For sure. Is that something that at the time you were worried about that you didn't really know what you'd be doing next? I don't really worry a lot, which is actually a delight. Like it's a it's superpower, but it is also kind of a privilege and it means I'm bad at planning. And so I don't think it stressed me out at the time. What I typically do is follow what I'm interested in until something else comes along that sort of grabs my attention. Kind of like raccoon. I'm like, that's shiny. Even though I wasn't stressed out going through it, there weren't moments of stress. And I wish somebody had said, you don't have a path and that's fine. Like It'll happen. 100%. I feel like that's something that, you know, a lot of people especially at that stage in which we're talking about your life, need need to hear. You know, you mentioned seeing something shiny and jumping to it. What was shiny about Minerva that made you, you know, want to pursue a path in the school and in the project? So the Minerva story is funny because Stephen Coslin was coming back to tell his former colleagues what he was up to. So he was giving a talk in the psych department at Harvard. And I remember reading the talk abstract. I'm like, that sounds weird. I should go. And then I totally forgot. I missed it. And then my friend went and I was like, oh, how was that? It was really weird. I like weird things. I looked it up and they were hiring and I wasn't on the job market that year. I had another year left in my teaching fellowship at Harvard. So I just kind of applied on a whim. It was not clear to me that it was real yet, which I think is true of a lot of people who came that early. But I was yeah. like, oh, well, worst thing that happens is I learn a bunch about teaching. They seem to really care about that. And so... For me, it was the idea of trying to do something interesting. And then it was the people I met through the interview process where I was just like, oh, all a bunch of weirdos like me. Everyone's super interdisciplinary. Everyone's excited about changing things. They came from academic paths where you're asked to pick one thing, but they didn't. And I think that's one thing that faculty, staff, students, everybody who comes to Minerva tends to be interested in a wide range of things. And so that felt homey. 100%. It seems like you're actually describing the student application experience right now. I think especially for, you know, us who are a little bit earlier, we're in the same boat. Like, is the school real? You know, and then 
we come, we show up, and we realize that there's a lot of like-minded people who may be like-minded in terms of values, but not in terms of actual substance, despite everybody being interested in, in quite a lot of stuff at Minerva. Awesome. So we've talked about your past. We've talked about, you know, what you've learned from your past. Let's move a little bit into what you're working on now. So how long have you been at Minerva? I started Minerva when the first graduating class was freshman. It's over six years at this point. Yeah. And you've done quite a few different things at Minerva. Do you want to sort of walk us through your history? Sure. I got hired to help develop the business college. I was sort of the curriculum faculty at first, which meant that I have touched every lesson plan in the business college. I apologize for most of them. But I, jokes aside, I'm pretty proud of what we built. And so I helped hire and train all of the business faculty, got the classes up and running. I became the head of the business college. And that was a really, really cool journey. I think there's some really good people there. And we had fantastic students who gave us great feedback to help us iterate on it. About two years ago, I started to work on some partnerships that we were doing. Uh, we had some other schools that were coming to us saying they wanted to rethink their approach to education and use some of the stuff we had learned in building Minerva University. I consulted kind of on summers and a little bit during the year. And I found that I really liked working with partners. And for me, what it gave me was that kind of creative outlet when we were still building the business curriculum. And Minerva University was sort of starting to feel stable. Like we had great faculty, we had strong students, we had the curriculum. It's not perfect, but it's there and we can iterate on it. And all of these Minerva project projects were kind of unknown. They were unbuilt. I sometimes make the joke that the building was not yet built and also a little bit on fire. And that looked like a good place to play. These partnerships sort of gave us the opportunity to do what we had done over the last six years in six months with 20 different schools. And so I got really excited about the chance to take all the things we had learned and start sharing them with other people. And when MU got its own accreditation, there was kind of a decision point for a lot of us as to whether or not we would stay at the schools or we would go more fully over to partnerships. And I'm still ostensibly a professor at Minerva University. I love it. I will come back and teach soon. Uh, but for for right now, I head up our professional learning portfolio, which means I'm responsible for making sure we build really cool, innovative programs for anything that's a non-degree program. Gotcha. And so what does that look like in practice? Or what does your, your day-to-day look like at Minerva Project? A lot of meetings, <laughs> but they vary in terms of who you're meeting with. So some of them are internal. I have a really, really great team that I work with closely. We're working on some exciting stuff. There's an executive education leadership program that takes place over 16 months. It's really hybrid. The learners come together for five days of in-person learning every other month for nine months. And then me and Osgur Osluk have them in a virtual classroom to support that and scaffold it over time. And then we have them for six months in a post-program. And so what we're trying to do is take people who will lead a Middle Eastern country, give them some skills throughout what we're teaching, but also connect them with each other. And that's one thing that I really love about Forum is the peer-to-peer -peer learning. So that's kind of on one end of the executive education spectrum. On the other end, we are in the process of working with a foundation that's going to teach high school students systems thinking so they can address climate change. 
And so we're designing little four-week courses that they can take outside of this annual conference that they go to. Awesome. Yeah, those are some super interesting projects. I think, you know, from a Minerva student perspective, we don't always get to see what goes on at the project level. So if they wanted to, where can current students find out more information about Minerva Project? That's a great question. I think that sometimes it feels a little bit opaque when the organization that helped build the university is now off doing other things. So you can always check out the website. But the thing I would actually encourage people to do is reach out to some of the staff and faculty there. We all still have really strong connections to Minerva University, and we're always happy to chat with people about the projects we're working on. Awesome. Outside of work, outside of Minerva Project, what else is going on in your life and what are you thinking about? Ooh, I think you know this, Oliver, because maybe I was teaching the class when I, your, the class that you took with me when I did this, but I left Boston in 2020 where I had been for almost a decade and oh. moved to Croatia for three months. And yeah. so I did the nomad thing and I kind of embraced my inner Minervan and didn't have a lease and didn't stay anywhere for more than three months for a long time. And it's been awesome. I've gone to some really, really amazing places. I've gotten to spend time with family and friends. I had to be in Barcelona for three days of meetings. So I stayed for three months, but eventually I got exhausted. So I moved to New York seeking some geographic stability. Yeah. What does, what does geographic stability mean for you? I think it might mean something a little different for Minerva students than it means for somebody who's, you know, who's already seen a lot and has a ton of work experience. I feel like you can edit this out, but I feel a little bit like you're calling me old. Edit it out. Edit it out. Edit it out. You can oh, also leave that in. That's funny. No, no, no. It's a great question. We're going to leave that in because this is fun. It's really good. I think so much of life as a Minervan is, can be virtual, especially for people who work remotely. And so, so many of my friends are all over that I get a lot of energy from like traveling and going to see them, but they, they come with you, right? The computer comes with you. And especially yeah. during COVID, even people who weren't remote sort of joined the virtual party too. And so I feel like I have a really strong base of people who I've stuck with and have stuck with me throughout different phases of life. But geographic stability for me is important to be close to family. I now have a new nephew. He's very, very cute. I like to hang around with him on weekends. And my parents are pretty close by. I can have lunch with my mom in the city. And so kind of making those in-person connections is really great. And Manhattan's one of the only places where I feel like there's so much going on that you can be a nomad in the city, but still stay in the same place for a while. 100%. So speaking about Manhattan, do you plan to stay here for a long time or are you seeking geographic stability elsewhere? I'm looking at leases. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Uh, <laughs> not just based on the price of these apartments because Manhattan's insane. But yeah, I haven't had a lease in a very long time, but I'm currently looking for one. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I also just stumbled into a lease. I'm in Brooklyn for up to 12 months now. We'll see if oh, that actually plays out. <laughs> You'll have to let me know how Brooklyn is. I feel like it's so far away that I need a spaceship to get there, but keep me posted. Yeah, the spaceship is the A train. And if you take the express, it's really close. But anything else, it, it is a bit of a trek to get into. It's a little worth it, though. It's nice to have some, some time to cool off from the craziness of the city. As we're wrapping up on our time here, I figured we'd jump into our fast fire round of questions. What's a fun fact that students wouldn't know about you? I play ultimate frisbee. Nice. What do you crave more of? You know, kettle chips, when you get the chip that's folded over on itself four times, those are the best no kind idea. of chips. 
Okay, more potato more, chips. More, I crave yeah. more potato chips. Always good with more potato chips. What title would you give the current chapter of your life? Nomad in a city. That's a great title. I'd read it. What is your word of the day? Kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. What does it mean? Kerfuffle is like a fight, an argument, a debate, mm. a mix up, a mess up, something like that. Just fun students. to say. Just fun to say, indeed. What do you wish students knew about professors? That we don't know what we want to be when we grow up. All right, let's wrap this episode. Best Releaser, what's the best way for our audience to reach you if they want to connect or have follow-up questions? I am super reachable on email. So it's Looser, L-O-O-S-E-R. It's a great last name at Minerva.edu. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Just tell me that you're a Minerva person. Awesome. Thank you for being on the show, Best Releaser. It was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. This was so fun. Thank you for inviting me. I had a really great time chatting with you. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and automatically get notified about new episodes on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at humansofminerva.podcast for all the latest updates and announcements. And finally, special thanks to our editor, Cassandra Cruz, for working her magic on this episode. Thank you for listening to Humans of Minerva.